Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the DCVC podcast with me, your host, Akash Pat, where I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists from India investing in tech startups. We've discussed a number of topics on this podcast so far, and today I'm super excited to introduce another one, investors and their relationships with their limited partners. And to delve deeper into this subject, this week with me on the podcast, I have Chinu Sandil Kumar. Chinu is the general partner and chief technology officer at Xfinity Venture Partners, an enterprise tech-focused VC fund with an emphasis on the U.S.-India corridor. He co-founded Xfinity, focusing on cutting-edge technology startups focused on AI, machine learning, computer vision, enterprise software, cloud infrastructure, and IoT. Prior to Xfinity, for about 20 years, Chinu had held progressive technology executive roles in Intel, SanDisk, and Texas Instruments, both in the U.S. and here in India, and holds about nine patents to his name. In the capacity of SanDisk country head, Chinu spearheaded SanDisk India in the areas of R&D, operations, and IT outsourcing. Today, SanDisk India houses 25% of its global R&D and has filed for hundreds of patents in the country. He has also been an innovator from a very young age and received the National Technology Award from the President of India at the age of 21. Chinu has received his master's from the University of Utah, Salt Lake City, and BE from College of Engineering, Gindi, in Chennai. We have a lot to cover on this episode, and I'm really excited to share this with you again. So without further ado, here's Chinu. Hi, Chinu. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you here with us today. Before we start, I wanted to give Arundhati Menon on your team a huge shout out for introducing us and helping this setup. So thank you so much, Arundhati. This is happening because of you. So it's such a weird world that we're currently living, living in right now. Tell us about the current state of Indian VC and what are you seeing around you, Chinu? So thanks, uh, Akash. Thanks for uh, inviting me for this session. And I have seen your past sessions. It has been very, very interesting and informative. So I hope I can add more to this. Uh, coming to your question, actually, uh, what do I see around? Um, actually, in the last uh, three months or a little more than three months, if you look around all over the world, including India, the VCs have been, uh, you know, kind of taking stock of the situation and making sure their existing portfolios are safe and they have enough runway and uh, look for opportunities also. That's what I see in a very, very macro level as a, as a VC. And uh, if you talk to me as a technologist, actually, um, I think this is definitely taken us to a new normal, uh, the COVID situation. And, you know, you must be hearing a lot of things about like work from home and the industry getting disrupted in a big way. So I think there is a whole gamut of changes happening around that. So since, you know, like, um, you know, this is, this is what I see it actually, yeah. Has it changed any of the investment thesis and focus that you've had? And uh, what are you listening from some of your other co-investor friends? So I think one uh, broad theme I do see, Akash, is uh, B2C, definitely there is a softening, okay? Because we, typically if you look at B2C, it requires a lot of capital. And also because of this COVID and social distancing norms all over the world, 
if you look at most of the b2c related uh, startups operations have come to you know it has slowed down so that in turn has triggered a lot of changes so that has come to vc level also uh, many vc funds i know of which has been doing b2c and b2b mix uh, they actually they are focusing more on b2b and uh, from we are we are only focused on b2b from the beginning in fact we are the first fund in india to focus on b2b and what we see is we are we are also impacted our portfolio is also impacted but not as much as what we see in b2c and in some cases we are seeing a tailwind and they are benefiting out of this situation also in b2b sector you know that's a very good point because i can share from my perspective that the middle market in my opinion is heavily affected early stage companies pre seed seed have been fairly doing well and the growth stage companies as well you know series c and d and beyond have managed to raise good capital but it's that middle market segment of series a and b companies who have been hard hit by the crisis is that very similar are you also seeing that in india yes uh, i'm i'm going to talk for both b2c and b2b uh, but i think then i'll talk more about b2b you are right because if you look at series a and series b uh, these kind of companies will get next round of funding based on the metrics right and the metrics are definitely being challenged uh, in the last 3 4 months because of the covid situation actually and whereas uh, the seed or pre series a the metrics the financial metrics are important but not as important as in the case of series a and b actually uh, we do see that trend overall and when it comes to b2b uh, yes i think there was little softening in the in the in the market actually but things are picking up that's what i do see it actually uh, because they are one layer removed from b2c companies so the companies are still spending uh, the pricing pressure is there in fact in some cases say for the example like uh, cyber security they have seen lot of tailwind because there has been a lot of cyber attacks all over the world uh, because of the geopolitical situation and other reasons actually and people are working from home and the other one is the fact that people have to follow social distancing that requires a lot of automation in many uh, enterprises actually that has actually uh, brought a lot of changes to our portfolio companies they are seeing a tailwind because of that actually also in terms of funding uh, as we speak a uh, couple of companies got term sheet during this time and i am expecting one more so it is happening but in a very selective way that's the way i look at in b2b and if you're well positioned if you have the right product i think it is not stopping for you now i think in our previous discussion you also mentioned something about the automotive industry and the kind of impact that it's had do you want to touch upon that a little bit sure actually see one of our company uh, called acri data which is basically silicon valley headquartered with uh, development and engineering in bangalore so this company has been developing um, data pipeline so if you look at uh, autonomous vehicles because the full autonomous level 5 is little far away but i think i am talking about intermediate stages like level 3 a dash like that so the companies all big auto majors be it us or japanese auto majors uh there is one waymo is there then apart from that each company is developing their own uh, autonomous uh, algorithms so in this particular case this company is helping this api data is helping companies to take the data because you collect so much data in the field the cars are going around collecting data every day but that has to be taken in real time to the central data center and you don't need all the 100% of the data actually so what this company does is basically does ai filtering in the end actually 
then transports efficiently to the central data center. That's what it does. And uh, so coming back to your question, how it is impacting, uh, because of this uh, COVID situation, people are very conscious about social distancing and you know uh, maintaining hygiene. So we have been noticing, we heard from multiple auto companies, the need for people are switching over to personal vehicles. So when you go for people buying personal vehicles, they are looking for the comforts of like Ola and sort of Uber and Ola. So they want to have more autonomous features. If not complete autonomous features, they want to have like ADAS features actually, which will make the driving experience more pleasurable actually. And uh, so because of that, we do see some changes there actually. Now that's a very interesting point that you made and the COVID pandemic has had a swift and severe impact globally across the integrated automotive industry and symptoms include, you know, disruption in manufacturing, especially the ones that are coming in from China, large manufacturing interruptions across Europe and the closure of uh, assembly plants in the US and worldwide as well. And this is kind of placing intense pressure on the industry that's already coping with a downshift in global demand, given the likely increase of, um, you know, uh, companies such as Uber, Ola, Lyft here in the US, and also the fact that there's a rising trend, especially with uh, self-driving and autonomous vehicles that is coming in the next five to 10 years. So all of this is kind of like having huge impact on the industry. Correct. Actually, so in fact, I didn't talk about other things because I just picked one area. But if you look at in in our uh, auto sector, the supply chain is getting, uh, you know, people are remapping the supply chain. People, they don't want uh, companies, CXOs. It's not only in auto sector, even electronics, they want to remap their supply chain. So a lot of companies in that startups in that space, they are also seeing benefits out of it. When you remap your supply chain from China to different countries, so they will continue to have some supply chain coming from China, uh, but they don't want to depend on it. When you do that, so you have to work out your supply chain flow. You have to work out your, you know, all those the entire gamut of supply chain and logistics, which is uh, giving um, opportunities for many startups in that space actually. So there are many examples, same thing in the factory automation also, like when you start working in factory, how do you ma maintain social distancing? There are some interesting cases I have come across where uh, solutions involving uh, making sure that workers, when they come closer, uh, it will automatically trigger. So because the work has to go on, but same time you have to maintain the social distancing. There are a lot of interesting applications are coming in the auto sector, manufacturing sector because of the COVID actually. Very interesting. I think it's going to be, uh, I mean, COVID for one is going to change many industries as we know it. And the fact that it's also going to bring technologies that were about three or four years away, bringing it closer and kind of exposing it to current times is something that, you know, if you, if you were to look at this pandemic period and say there's something that's good that's come out of it, it's the fact that technologies that we thought were, you know, five, five years or four years away from being deployed are currently being deployed right away. So I think that's the only takeaway in uh, in good light that you can have about this pandemic. Yeah, you're exactly right, actually. Actually, uh, COVID, these kind of technologies were being thought out, but I think COVID really pushed it fast. So it, it expedited them, actually. The adoption got expedited because of COVID, actually. That's very Absolutely. Different. Absolutely. Now, let's dial back the clock a little bit here now take us through your journey we've spoken a whole lot about you know the current crisis and what's been happening in india as such but i wanted to talk about your journey share with our listeners 
what are some of the key events in your life that kind of led you into venture capital? Did you always know you wanted to be a VC? Actually, the answer is no. Uh, it was an accidental choice, actually. Uh, so like many other Indian uh, students, I went to do my grad school in 90s to US. Then I worked in Silicon Valley companies, uh, Intel. And 2004, I, have reloc- I had relocated to India. And I have set up SanDisk India R&D and as well as operations. It was kind of a semi-startup. So uh, around 2011 or 12 timeframe, um, so the Fortune 500 uh, IT majors like Infosys, Wipro, the CFOs like Mohandas Pai, Bala, they thought about setting up a B2B focused VC fund because the idea is there are many B2C funds, but let us set up a B2B focused VC fund and make it more practitioner driven. Because if you look at Silicon Valley, the difference between many of the India-based VC funds or uh, uh, in India, as well as Silicon Valley, the the GPs are more hands-on actually. So they either they would have been an entrepreneur or actually they would have been executed in a company and they join as a GP. So they bring a lot of practical aspects of it. So we want to bring these kind of aspects, especially in B2B, it is very required. So I joined this team as a co-founding member, uh, mainly looking after technology. So it was an accident. I never expected that I would become a venture capitalist, actually. And after that, actually, I have been uh, with this fund about five, six years now. And the journey has been great. And we look at a wide variety of companies, ranging from artificial intelligence, uh, computer vision, AR, VR, augmented reality, um, then cybersecurity. We have invested in these areas and we have invested companies in alternative batteries. Uh, in fact, we have one company which is into aluminum air of uh, metal oxide batteries and we have companies in, in silicon. So we have wide variety of uh, B2B themes that we have taken up and the journey has been very, very interesting. I'm able to utilize a lot of my technology, technical experience, which I gained in Intel, SanDisk and Texas Instruments. I'm able to apply that actually. Now, how would you say your five years have been? They say, you know, VC years are as good as dog years because five years seems like 25. What have you learned in the last five years or so being a venture capitalist? I think first thing I would say, uh, I wish I had started a little earlier in venture capital space. Um, One, actually, you definitely work with uh, very enthusiastic entrepreneurs actually compared to you work with big companies. So a different set of uh, people actually. And second, actually in India, uh, the startup has been, uh, the startup uh, is in the booming area actually. Uh, basically, you know, if you talk about 20 years back, uh, the concept of startup socially was not that prevalent actually. But in the last five to 10 years, it has really uh, picked up and even if you go to small towns, people talk about startups. I have been jury and panelist in several sessions and meetings. And I think startup has come to stay in India and it is expanding. I think this will really grow and will add to be a significant part of your GDP growth in India and maybe five to 10 years down the road. That's the way I look at it. So I'm very happy to be part of this journey and adding value to that actually. No, I like that you pointed that out because often when people talk about the Indian startup landscape, they they say that the numbers are kind of skewed towards the consumer companies. And if you take a look at the spectrum as well, you'll find a lot of B2C companies and B2B companies, but that trend is kind of shifting over the last few years. 
what have you seen in terms of how the industry is, is changing and what's bringing about that change wherein we are now currently looking at a lot more B2B companies and companies that are not just targeted here towards the Indian market, but also globally ready from day one. So I think that's a good, good point. Actually, in fact, uh, I like to, I love to talk about this. If you look at India's um, private equity and venture capital investment, probably 15 years back, the investments were more focused on infrastructure like uh, roads, ports, more financial uh, investment actually. And probably about 10 years back, uh, the VCs, they started putting money into B2C companies like Flipkart and many other examples, actually. I think in the last five years, the shift, definitely B2C is a big component because India being a very big country, there is a lot of millions, billions of consumers, actually, millions, hundreds of millions of consumers. Definitely B2C has a play, actually. But B2B starting to emerge, it's growing bigger. Uh, I see multiple reasons. One, actually, historically, Indian uh, R&D talent has been recognized and more and more companies coming and setting up R&D, like Sandisk, 15 years back, 20 years back, that created a talent pool in deep tech, actually. That is one. Second, uh, the Indian VCs, Indian origin VCs play in Silicon Valley. They shifted their attention towards India. Like I mentioned in our portfolio company, out of uh, 20 companies, 10 companies are basically uh, in headquartered in the U.S. or registered in the U.S. or they have a business office there. And uh, for a B2B, it is very important to have a U.S. angle or outside of India angle. It could be Singapore or it could be U.S. But in our case, predominantly it is U.S. So I think, you know, all this Indian origin VCs or Indian origin entrepreneurs being getting successful in the last two decades or maybe two to three decades. Uh, they turn their attention, they understand the potential in India in terms of engineering and technical talent. So this U.S. Indo-Corridor uh, startups, the cross-border startups, they are growing and it will grow even further actually. That's a very interesting point that you made because I was speaking to somebody recently who uh, was on the Microsoft uh, Teams team and one of the points that that person made was that India previously could not really think about, you know, they didn't really produce a lot of product managers and it was really difficult to think about product first approach and think about a global product from day one. Historically, we've built companies for the domestic market and then trying to like go global. But I think with this whole cross-border sort of expertise that's coming in, a lot of expats moving back to India and starting companies, there's a whole lot of knowledge that they're also bringing back with them that's kind of like helping them scale and build companies from day one that's ready for international markets. And also a lot more younger entrepreneurs who are coming about and building companies are thinking about not just satisfying domestic needs, but also uh, trying and seeing if the companies can scale to outside markets because that's a big chunk of their revenue. And the fact that they're able to bring in big numbers um, from international markets really helps um, the industry go forward as well. And investors are going to back these companies because they see a lot of returns. And therefore, the whole industry as such is being uplifted. Uh, when I reflect uh, my journey in the last five, six years in the venture capital world, and I definitely see the quality of the entrepreneurs and their understanding has been increasing exponentially. And for the factors you mentioned, and I'd like to add some more. Uh, one, actually, a lot of Indian diaspora, which educated outside, and when they come back after maybe five to 10 year experience, instead of working for a company, they like to start a company. So we have one great example. 
which is called the Mad Street Den, which is in Chennai. This uh, husband and wife, uh, they have written back from US with PhD degrees and working in Intel kind of companies 10 years back. So instead of joining a company in R&D center, they started a company in Chennai, which is not as big as uh, Bangalore startup ecosystem, but they have done fantastic because they, we started investing them in pre-series A. Now they crossed series B about six months to one year back. And uh, they are looking to raise series C in the next six months. And they have several Fortune 500 clients in their, in their, in their uh, customer list, actually. So like that, I can quote many examples. Uh, basically, it is uh, the Indian uh, talent coming back to India, uh, got educated or you know, gained experience outside of India and coming back. That is one stream helping. Second, even all these Silicon Valley companies or MNC companies setting up R&D in the last 15, 20 years. Like, for example, General, General Electric. They have 5,000 scientists working in Bangalore. Like that, there are several MNC, they have R&D centers that created a talent pool in the last 15, 20 years. And third, um, you know, the, the service companies, they have experience working with customers all over the world, like Infosys or Wipro. So the confluence of all these things coming together uh, made entrepreneurs to think from a product point of view. And again, Indian origin VCs turning their attention to India as a major talent that also is definitely uplifting our startup ecosystem. That's the way I look at it. That's awesome. Now, how do you at Xfinity look at the decision-making process when you're looking at an investment? Because we spoke about a bunch of things now when we're thinking about talent, when we're thinking about the scale, when you're thinking about where these companies and how they can grow. And the fact that they're already looking at global markets from day one, how are you at the firm thinking about this and how does that kind of like impact the decision-making process with respect to an investment deal? Sure. Actually, the way I look at it is uh, we definitely like to bet on the founding team. Uh, that is very, very important because the way I look at it is uh, you can have idea, but how well you can execute and how well you are equipped to execute, that is very, very important. So we put a lot of premium on the experience and the understanding of the founding team. Uh, in fact, through experience, we also learned that we like to have multi-member team, actually. We don't want to go for a single founding. We have exceptions, but generally we prefer like two or three members in the founding team who can complement each other. One focuses on technology, the other one focuses on business development. Maybe the third one focuses on different aspects of it, actually. So we look for a complementary skill set in the founding team. Second, we look at the experience in that particular industry because in B2B, unlike B2C, we need to have reasonable domain experience. You need to know the players. You need to know the state of actors to sell your product. You need to understand what are the existing gaps to conceive an idea and think from a product angle and think from an ecosystem actually and also to build channel partners. So we do look at uh, the business idea with domain experience. Third, actually, we definitely give a lot of importance to how they can scale. What is, what is their scaling plan, actually? Because, um, you know, we have seen quite a few times engineers or maybe technical, uh, you know, people with technical background, they can come up with a product. But how do you scale? Because in, in, in startup, the fun is how do you take a product and scale it, actually? When you scale so that, you know, that uh, all geographies, you look from a, customer from multiple geographic angle, how do you take about your GTM, how do you prioritize, where do you sell fast, 
how do you find the you know how do you discover the prices we look at all these three uh, things actually we look at the founding team we look at the idea we look at their gtm um, you know we look at the market size these are all four five factors we look at it actually now is it too early to try and assess all of the unit economics at seed stage because that's kind of like some of the areas that you also look into what does proper attribution look like and what i'm trying to like basically get to is that do you have mental plasticity towards unit economics recognizing and how that changes over time or are you simply looking at certain metrics and feel that if they meet our benchmarks then this is probably a company that we should we should look into so i think that's an interesting point uh, we are not fixated on uh, a certain number at this stage especially when we start in series series a or seed stage but we like to see the founders vision i know that it changes over a period because we have seen companies and uh, they should be ready to change their mindset ready to uh, change their strategy as they go along because the market changes you should be prepared but they should have an idea and they should know where they are positioned they should have a proper swot analysis about their product or their thought process and we periodically discuss with them to change it actually so we are not fixated on the unit metrics but we like to understand how what is their thought process and do they have a reasonable ballpark idea we do definitely look at that that is very important actually now that's a very interesting point that you made because it kind of like ties into one of the thesis that i have which is basically what i call it the founder fund fit where you know apart from investing in the jockey rather than the horse which basically we discussed about which is you know founders and not the product as such it's also really important to well, I mean, see product, sorry, uh, the product is also important but the priority is founder product and gtm like that absolutely and the whole concept about founder fund fit is that it kind of sits exactly between founder product fit and product market fit and if you're not able to kind of like find that sweet spot where you're not able to get along with the founders or if there's a completely mis- complete mismatch between um what we like to call the founder imagination and uh you know vc expectation it it's basically a recipe for failure at that point so i think that really ties into a good point that you made where it kind of like needs to match all the expectations that you're looking at as well now moving the needle a little forward i wanted to see how you dissect both wins and losses because he we heard at scrum you know when we look at it we try and do a postmortem once we won a deal or once we have lost a deal and try to see what 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 are the things that we did well especially when we been uh, and end up making an investment we're like okay these are some of the things that went well and if a company has an exit we kind of like do and we kind of go back and look at things that really went well for us okay these are some of the things that we can highlight could be the way that we found the company uh was the kind of diligence that we had or what 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 this company really do well over the course of its uh of its lifetime that it went on to become a successful exit and pretty much the same for some for losses as well we do it for deals like deals that we lost out on companies that we were really excited about but couldn't invest in and also look at companies that kind of like died So I'm curious to understand if you guys do the same thing how do you use postmortems to help you improve your whole diligence process as well as structuring of um, the portfolio itself So it's definitely very important uh, the postmortem we do both in the cases of success as well as uh, failure actually because uh, you know it is when you look at a new company uh, we have to apply that and this is a constant process we keep learning 
And I think in the last five, six years, we learned a lot of things uh, through, you know, like we corrected some of the earlier mistakes as we move forward, actually. Uh, what to look for in a founding team, what to look for in a product. And again, there is no, uh, you know, you're not creating a checklist where you do a tick box. So you have to assess and feel about it. So we do look at successful companies. Uh, when I say successful, it is not necessarily only exit. It could be upround, it could be a product win, it could be customer engagement. We look at multiple metrics to assess the company's success actually over a period. And uh, similarly, when you say failure, it is not just only write-off. Even the companies we expected to do certain way, but it is not doing. Is it because of the market? Is it because of the execution problem? So we do look at multiple things when we look at success and failures. And uh, we do, in fact, discuss in our investment committee meeting as well as in partner meeting, which we do every six months. And uh, this is a constant process. And not only we look at from our inside uh, portfolio, we do look at other uh, VC funds in India as well as outside of India because we co-invested with uh, many other VC funds. Uh, we have co-invested with Sequoia. We have co-invested with Axel, we have co-invested with Menlo, uh, we have co-invested with many corporate venture funds. So we do talk to them. I think one thing what I understood in the venture capital, uh, being networked is very, very important. So I would say 25% to 50% of your time, especially in a GP level, goes into networking. So I think, uh, you know, the postmortem is, I would say it's probably almost every minute or every week or every month it happens. Maybe the level of postmortem could be small level or maybe, you know, bigger level actually. But I think we do analyze and we constantly look for feedback actually. Well, I'm not a GP, but I can tell you for sure that I take at least between seven to eight calls on a weekly basis with new VCs just so that I can expand my network. And I do that very, very cautiously and consciously because as you said, you're only as good as your network and I get half my deal through my my network and I also share a whole lot of uh, my startups with them and this creates co-investing opportunities for us so as we see is one of the best things that you can do is network with as many people as possible across various markets and various countries because you never know what kind of like leads you to what and uh, I think that's created a whole lot of opportunities for us so I definitely second that now as a follow-up to that question or that segment uh, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you invest both with VCs as well as the corporate side, corporate venture capitalists as well. What's the difference between investing with both of them on side by side? How do these conversations begin and how do these conversations kind of, how do you manage these conversations post an investment? Are they different? Are they very similar? Um, how do you guys go about it? Okay, so definitely there is some difference between uh, venture capital fund as well as corporate venture capital fund. The reason why we look at corporate venture fund is uh, one of the things we bring it to the table to our portfolio company and one of the reasons they like to come to us. Because uh, just to elaborate on that, many companies come to us, came to us in the past, will come to us because not just for funding alone. The other things we bring it to the table in terms of CXO connections, how to sharpen the GTM messages, and there are multiple things we offer. That's why we are called practitioner driven fund. And also we help them in the up round. Like we start in pre-series A and then we help them to go to series A, series B. So we work with multiple funds um, to help them to get, uh, sorry, we work with all our portfolio companies to get the next round, which is very important. 
So coming back to your question, actually, um, how do we kind of, uh, you know, how do I look at corporate VC fund versus uh, venture capital fund? So the venture capital fund, we work differently because we have certain flexibility. Corporate funds may or may not have it, actually. See, the corporate funds, they definitely look at a company, startup, mainly from their business angle. So if you look at most of the corporate venture capital funds nowadays, it has evolved again. I have been seeing that last 15, 20 years. They need to get the buy-in from a particular business unit. Let's say Intel Capital, they have to get the buy-in from their internal business unit before they invest. And that goes for Cisco and different corporate venture funds actually. So basically when we approach a corporate venture fund, we look at this uh, uh, these companies as the our startup companies customers that's why we like to bring them actually and uh, so they are mostly strategic investment actually and in terms of flexibility uh, i'm sure you know that the practice is there's no hard and fast rule uh, in terms of uh, valuation setting and other things lead funds like us uh, which is not a corporate fund will set the valuation and other things they lead the deal Corporate funds, they uh, may even uh, put more money than typical venture capital fund, but they don't uh, lead the round and they don't set the terms actually. But they play a lot of strategic role actually. Uh, they can help them to connect internally and uh, we have seen quite a few cases uh, it works very well actually. That's a great point that you make and it's a good segue into my second segment where I want to talk to you more about your role as a fund manager or a general partner at a VC fund and trying to explore a little bit about what is it that a GP does and what are some of the challenges that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's start off with the first part, which is on the fundraising side. How do you as a GP raise funds today, especially given that the market is so impacted because of COVID? So, uh... Actually, uh, as we speak, just before COVID, we closed our first round for our third fund. Uh, definitely, there is a challenge uh, because the public market, uh, so your, your fundraising is linked to the public market performance. And uh, we actually, we are an India-based fund. So our LPs come from India. So our fundraising is, uh, my experience is more limited to the India-based LPs, actually. So typically, the way we start, uh, we find an anchor investor who finds this theme very, very attractive. Uh, I won't be able to name the names, but it could be a big industrialist or it could be a HNI who likes this theme. So we start with maybe, the, the, we start with them uh, with 5% equity, sorry, 5% of the fund. Then, uh, then we close the first round. Then we go for second round, which is institutional round. And third round, we kind of have a mix of HNI and institutional round, actually. And I think, you know, the challenges, initial days, I'm talking about five, six years, when we launched the B2B, uh, people were, the LPs were a little skeptical because um, India was, uh, even now, it is known more for service industry and B2C. So when we talk about B2B, there was a lot of skepticism, but I think looking at our background, how our GPs scale companies, uh, be it in Infosys or Wipro or myself in Sandisk in India, they actually uh, have put money based on our past performance in big companies, not necessarily a venture capital actually. 
And the second challenge I would say is uh, in India when you do fundraising, uh, you know, even HNIs or uh, wealthy investors participating in venture capital is slowly taking off in India, unlike in, in US where people understand where, uh, like if you go to the family office, a certain portion of their, uh, you know, like uh, the, the family office allocates certain percentage of their wealth into venture capital. And I think that concept is picking. Um, so traditionally people put more money in public market and the whole industry is changing. So if you look at even many of the VC funds operating in India, they have not raised fund from India. They basically raise their LPs are outside of India, but they focus on investing in India actually. So, but we try to change that. So we raise money in India. We have done thrice now so far in the last five times, so five years, and we will continue to do that. And slowly the concept is trickling down actually. People are realizing this is an investment area they should not be left out. So that is one challenge we had in the beginning days. And second, actually, the industry, like uh, even from a regulation point of view, I have seen a lot of evolution in the last five years in terms of taxation, in terms of uh, you know structuring, in terms of uh, several things actually. So I think you know, good thing is uh, government is also changing, though it may not be to the level we want. It is changing actually. I think third, in terms of uh, fundraising, I would say uh, the expectations are different because. If you look at the Indian investor, uh, the Indian LPs, they are used to different kind of uh, uh, you know, returns. So we need to adjust their expectations actually. And we need to explain to them. So they, the amount of explanation involved was quite, a, quite uh, you know, it was quite heavy in the beginning days, but that is gradually coming down actually. That is on the fundraising part. So as a GP, what I do, um, so, Part of the B2B startup focusing on part of the B2B, you have to evolve with the ecosystem. Also, you have to grow the ecosystem. There are two roles. So I participate in several panels and I participate in several webinars. Like I mentioned, I network with several CXOs of big companies outside of India because most of our portfolio company customers are outside of India. Some are in India also. I would say 75%, 25%. 75% outside and 25% India. So we do interact with CXOs of many companies in India and outside, and we understand their needs. They, we look at their roadmaps. Then we try to map our portfolio company products, actually. That's the second thing. I spend a lot of time in that. And third, actually, uh, we look at uh, you know, a lot, lot of deals. Like you know that in deal sourcing, you have to do a lot of deal sourcing. So we do visit a lot of accelerators. We do look at um, uh, both in US and as well as in India or maybe in Singapore. And uh, so we constantly spend a lot of time looking at deal sourcing and deal pipeline actually. So that's the third part of activities actually. And uh, the once we invest in a particular company startup, so we have three GPs, operating GPs. We take board seats in these companies. And I'm, in a, I'm a board member in about seven, eight companies. So we work closely with the founders on many aspects, helping them to reach out to the customer, you know, sharpen the GTM, and we look at their product roadmap. So we spend pretty much, almost we meet with founding team uh, every week, actually, for one reason or other reason, actually. So our interaction is quite, uh, quite intensive with the, with the companies, actually. 
So I, in fact, had a couple of follow-up questions. I have three. So let me start off with the one that I had the most recent. So out of all of the things that you currently mentioned, how would you, how would you say you break down the, your time? Would you allocate 25% towards deal sourcing and about 30% to portfolio support? How would you go on and classify the amount of percentage allocation that you give towards uh, all of the various activities that you as a GP? So definitely portfolio management probably would be 30 to 40% in my case. And I have a uh, another GP or actually managing partner, my counterpart Shailesh Gopade. So he spends more time on the deal structuring, fundraising. But in my case, I spend more time on portfolio management, deal sourcing. Definitely, I also participate in the fundraising, probably 10, 15% of my time. Uh, then I also spend quite a bit of time in ecosystem connections, actually. The ecosystem being connecting with universities, connecting with CXOs of all these potential companies, potential customer companies then participating in webinars, panel discussions, and uh, you know, participating as a jury member in several accelerator events. So that's probably about 20%. So that would be the rough break of it. And also I do write articles about the tech ecosystem in India and outside. Got it, okay, that's great. Now you mentioned that you spend um, some of your time also being a board member on some of your portfolio companies, and you're on about seven to eight companies boards. Now, when you're looking at companies internally, because you have three GPs on the on the team, how do you decide who takes a board seat at which company? Does it really come down to the industry and the experience and expertise that you guys have across these sectors? Or is it kind of unanimous decision saying, oh, okay, it doesn't matter who does what? So definitely the experience and exposure in that industry makes a big difference. That's the main criteria. Okay, so that's that's the most focus that you guys give. Anybody Correct. who has experience in that particular domain goes on to become a board member. Okay. Right. And I think, you know, in many cases, we had to learn, though we are exposed to our experience in that particular area, doesn't mean that we know everything. But I think right. that gives a good starting point. And uh, so, in fact, even the way it goes, uh, when we source a deal, um, so usually the GP or whoever is uh, sourcing that deal, they end up spending more time after investment actually because you develop a chemistry before you stitch the deal and get it approved by the investment committee members. So then you have developed a comfort with the particular team, you understand the nuances. So mostly you end up becoming the board member, but uh, the, the experience and exposure in that particular sector definitely makes a, it's one of the criteria before we select board member actually for that. And Fair it's enough. not only just uh, the general partners or board members. We have one more venture partner. He's also a board member in a couple of companies. Okay, that's very and interesting. Uh, all, all our analysts actually, um, wherever possible, typically we take a board seat and board observer seat. Observer so seats. The, GPs, yeah. uh, the GPs, uh, both of us, we take uh, board seats. Mm -hmm. And one of the venture partner, he also takes one or two uh, board seats. We, he's in a board member. He's a board member in a couple of companies. And the board observer, uh, we usually pick all our analysts, like the, the senior level analyst, uh, to be a board observer in all the companies we participate in, actually. That's great. That kind of exposure is really important for analysts as you know they try and understand how companies are built, what kind of conversations to have at the board level, and things that, uh, you know, what, what goes into building successful or even just companies as such. 
Now, the third follow-up question that I had was that, you know, you've gone on to raise three funds for Xfinity. Now, which is the hardest? Is it the first fund or the subsequent funds? Because you're kind of going back to your LPs and saying, hey, this is the fund performance. This is our IRR. This is, these are reasons why you should invest in us. Or is the first fund the hardest for you to go out and raise? Uh, definitely the first fund. And because we kick-started everything from ground up, the concept was new to India, the B2B concept, and uh, everything was new. Uh, but I think uh, we, we put in a lot of effort consuming it, and we looked at uh, the market assessment. And luckily, you know, the GPs and the founding team has a lot of experience in fundraising and connections in the financial world. That helped a lot. But that was the hardest. The first fundraising was the hardest. Fair enough. I think a lot of GPs that I've also spoken to have mentioned that the first one is often the hardest because sometimes you don't come from a VC background and for you to go out and prove yourself to first-time LPs is always the hardest and which is probably the reason why a lot of micro VC funds start out really small, go out and prove themselves and then go on to raise uh, bigger rounds of uh, funding. Now, I think that is a great segue into my next question, which basically revolves around LP communication and I think this is one of the most important pieces that doesn't receive the attention that it needs or requires in the industry. And often people outside in the industry also don't really know a whole lot about how GPs communicate with their LPs. So I want to break this question down into basically two parts. First, for our first-time listeners or those who are eager to start their own funds, tell us what LP communication looks like. What are the basics and how should first-time managers communicate with their existing LPs? And the second question is, how do you communicate with potential LPs? Like LPs that you're either thinking about pitching for a first fund or second fund or subsequent funds. What's the playbook on that front? So two questions here for you. Okay. So definitely there are two mechanisms. One is a formal mechanism. The second one is informal mechanism. I'll come to the informal mechanism a little later. The formal mechanism, so we have different categories. So for our regular LPs, so we have a quarterly update. So the quarterly update comprises of overall market trend. Then we talk about each and every company's, uh, the each and every portfolio, uh, business development, product development, any significant development. So we give a summary, probably about 15 pages or so, or maybe a little longer actually. So which covers the macro environment in this sector, and then we talk about, um, we talk about actually uh, the portfolio performance, individual companies. Then we also, this is one aspect of it. This is a quarterly report. Then the second one is informal communication. So some of our key LPs, uh, we do visit cities. Uh, many of our LPs come from Mumbai or Delhi or Bangalore. So we do meet them in person, like, Probably when we visit Mumbai, we combine and we go and meet them in person. We talk to them actually. And in many of these situations, uh, many of our key LPs, they also become co-investors on and above the regular investment actually in, in a selective portfolio companies. So we have that, you know, like we do that every two, three months with our key GPs actually. In addition, we also call annual we have been doing that for the last two years uh, annual investors day which we hold it in uh, bangalore and mumbai we plan to do it in other cities also 
where we have a half day event where our entire team comes and followed with a dinner so people can get an update and informally meet with our portfolio companies as well as our own team and uh, get a feedback informally so we we do have multiple communication mechanisms actually and uh, so in these annual investor events we also invite potential lps also ah very interesting so that's one way of existing investors speaking to uh, potential lps and then trying to also share the good things and you know highlight the fun to 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 people who might be interested there correct now apart from inviting them for such kind of gatherings are there other ways that you communicate with potential lps is there a playbook that you would recommend to first time founders like things that they should do and not do especially when they're communicating with uh, cuz i mean for all of our listeners uh fundraising even for a gp is as difficult as it is for uh, a founder as well because from most of the conversations that i've had and also experiencing what you know scrum has done itself you probably have conversations upwards of uh, i know 10x before you can actually nail down on your uh, lp lp list so if you're if you have about 10 investors as as your lps your chances are you've probably had close to like 800 900 conversations depending on the kind of uh, network that you have the kind of stage of the fund that you're in and also the caliber of the gp that you are so if you're kind of dedicating this answer to first time fund fund managers who don't really have a massive massive network but have had smaller successes in terms of exits have had good sort of experience uh, you know maybe outside uh, the you know about that india coming in from different markets what kind of advice would you give them especially when they're speaking to potential lps in india so definitely actually having one gp or founding member with strong connections with financial world is very very important um, you know in terms of uh, i bankers in terms of who can take your product the channel partners actually when you do a fundraise it's very very important if you are not coming from financial world if you have if you don't have any experience in fundraising in the past uh, you are founding it's better to have one of the founding member with that kind of exposure and prior experience it doesn't need to be in venture capital world it can be in different financial market because the kind of questions they ask the investors in terms of tax structuring fund structuring returns you need to have one team member uh, in in your team actually then in addition once you have the team um, you know like say, let us say you have the pitch book so we go go to different cities even today we go to different cities uh, you know definitely mumbai is one of our hot spot then we go to different cities all over india it could be even small towns like jaipur or it could be a small town like coimbatore and we kind of know that there are many hnis they have not invested in venture capital so we kind of experiment them so we talk to them we go to a club and invite maybe 10 15 members as 10 15 uh, potential lps we kind of brief them it may not convert that time itself it may be in the next fund we have seen some of them we talked in the first fund they joined only in the third fund so you have to kind of keep engaged it will turn one day if they are really interested actually because they take time to especially in india they they are understanding the venture capital investment so they take time to invest actually but i have seen if you persist 
and uh, they they slowly come to your chimney now here in the us we have an and in addition in addition actually we had to, we had to be active in social media about the investments startups we had to be seen as a figure who understands and participating in panel discussions these are all very very important actually right now here in the us there's a limit uh, on the amount of money that you can raise from uh, accredited investors not the amount on the money but more limit on the number of investors that you can have as uh, lps do you have a similar sort of a structure in india as well uh, not really actually okay that was very important for our listeners to know that you know there there is a every market has its own constraints and mm-hmm. here in the us there's about actually, 100 people that you at, can have right if you look at us and india there are a lot of similarities but there are some local nuances there in terms of uh, because we were planning to uh, we are in the process of also setting up an offshore fund with a lot of lps from outside of india so we looked at that market several times uh, including us market uk market like that and there are a lot of similarities but there are some nuanced differences you should be aware of it i guess it's a very good point that you made and one thing that we haven't addressed till date on this podcast is gp commitment towards a fund we can all agree that skin in the game is very important and it kind of shows you that you're in it for the long run however how do you set benchmarks both for yourself and manage expectations of your lps with respect to the commitment itself so one actually uh, you being a cheap gp definitely uh, you have to uh, you have to have show skin in the game in terms of investment participation and also um, there are many ways you can demonstrate your commitment the kind of investors you bring from your own circle because they trust you that's why they invest money in, in you uh, because each gp brings certain amount of uh, certain number of investors to the in, uh, fund actually in addition actually there are many ways you can put some clauses uh, like key man clause uh, so that in case of any you know like uh, unexpected events um your your uh, incentives are not incentive so incentives are aligned such that you are there to stay longer actually i hope that answer your question it does it definitely does but in terms of uh, one other follow up question so in terms of financial commitment from a gp that number varies from it could be as little as you know 1% to like 10% of the fund are there certain expectations from lps here or is that something that's open ended so there is no hard and fast rule but i have seen in us it it i have seen the gp participation the gp pool participation being anywhere between 2 to 5% uh, especially for a bigger funds uh, but actually when we started it was much higher i may not be able to disclose that i had to check with my lawyer how much we can disclose but in our first fund it was way higher there was no requirement but we wanted to demonstrate our commitment so it was very very high compared to the 2 to 5% and the second fund also it was significantly higher so it is probably your lps feel more comfortable especially when you are starting a new fund either the gp pool or the you know like people who come with gp that pool should be significantly higher the 2 to 5% what you are talking about in us market or even mature markets in india or mature fund in india is probably once you establish yourself but when you are setting up a fund that number probably has to be significantly higher to demonstrate your commitment there is no hard and fast rule but it has to be significantly higher to um, 
show your commitment. I'm glad you touched upon that. And uh, for all our listeners who don't know what a keyman clause is, keyman clause is a contractual clause that prohibits an investment firm or a fund manager from making new investments if one or more key people on the team are not available to devote the necessary time to make an investment. And a keyman is usually an important employer executive who is critical to the operation of the business. So that's kind of like the context here. Uh, so I want to like move into our last segment here, which is basically a rapid fire. It kind of, you know, is something where we have a lot of fun with uh, our guests and get, gives me a chance to delve a little more deeper into the personal side of things. You know, it doesn't really have to do a whole lot with investments as such, but dive deeper into the investor persona, in fact, let's put it that way, and get to know, know more about who you are as a person. So if you're ready, I'm going to shoot some questions at you. Sure, I'm game for it. Awesome, perfect. So what is one thing that you'd love to change about Indian venture capital? Uh, Indian uh, corporates participating more into that. Oh, that's a great point. Uh, I think we touched upon this previously as well, but what is that one hardest thing that you can think of about being a GP? Uh, when you have to let go a company uh, for various reasons, actually. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. I've been, I've been there to, I've, been, I've, I've not sent out emails, but I've been part of email threads and seen that happen. So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely disappointing. Now, how have you seen yourself change as a person in the last five or six years as a VC? Uh, more empathetic. Perfect. I think that's very important as well. Now, if somebody was starting out in venture capital today, what kind of advice would you have for them? I think it's, it's definitely fun. It's a roller coaster. It's fun. So you'd, you'd advise them to like have a lot of fun. It comes with a lot of challenges, but stick yes. through. It's going to be a lot of fun at the end of the day. Yes, yes, yes. It's worth it. Let me tell you. And I wish I joined earlier. That's what I would say. Perfect. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Now, and the timing is perfect in India right now. That was in fact going to be my next question. Like if there are people sitting outside of India, both investors who are parachute investors, as well as, uh, you know, first time fund managers who are thinking about it, what should they know about India that they don't already know? Like people always talk about, yeah, there's this 1.3 billion population that the opportunity, it's an emerging middle class, you know, there's on the B2B side, things are opening up. But what, what is one thing that they need to know that doesn't really meet everybody's attention? Ground reality. You got to be on ground to really understand yes. things. You have to have feet on street, as they say. Even for someone who grew up in India, let's say they moved out of India and mm -hmm. if they live outside of India for 10 years, five years is a big change. Yes. So you have to either relocate here or you have to keep visiting to understand the local changes. You got you to gotta have context. It's very difficult yes. to understand yes. markets otherwise. I totally agree with that. And that's actually one of the reasons why I'm also doing this podcast is trying to understand more about the Indian VC landscape. Because the plan is at some point, I do hope to return to India. So, you're welcome. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, lastly, uh, what is your advice to startups who are fundraising during this very difficult period that we're all going through? If you have the right idea, there are funds who are investing. We invested in one company just like about one month back. So look for the right VC. It's, it has not stopped. Awesome. 
You know, I actually said that was my last question, but I thought of one more. So I'm going to plug that in. Is sure. there a company that you looked at, you ended up passing on that you have regrets on? So in other words, do you have an anti-portfolio? Yes, we do have many, uh, probably four or five. Is there one that really stands out? Uh, let me think actually. Uh, yes, there's a company called uh, Incraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really love to do it, but for for many reasons, we could not do it. Yeah, that's uh, that's a bummer. Hopefully, you can uh, invest in their next round. Uh, Possibly. But yeah, thank you so much, you know, for your time. This was such an interesting chat. I learned a whole lot about the, the GP side of business and what it takes to run a fund and go about the day-to-day operations as well as on the investment side, and both how B2B enterprise VC funds operate as well as how you at Xfinity go about with your investments. So, Thank you so much for your insights. This was fantastic. And I'm pretty sure all of our listeners also will have the same sentiment when they listen to this episode. Hey, thanks, Akash. Uh, it's uh, definitely fun. I had lots of fun. I think you had a lot of interesting questions. Uh, look forward to other sessions some other time. Well, that episode had a wealth of information in it. Thank you, Chinu, for shedding light on what it takes to run a successful VC fund. I really enjoyed every bit of our chat and I hope all of our listeners had a ball hearing that as well. It goes to show that running a VC fund isn't that easy and there's a lot more that goes into it than that meets our eye. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did and if you did, please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on any of the podcasting platforms that you listen to us on. Also, leave us a rating and review and ensure that you tune back in again next week and listen to us because we've got another great guest lined up. Until then, stay safe, everybody. Take care and keep hustling.